Have you ever had anybody betray you? Even when you're betrayed, folks, God can still work everything together for good. He can still glorify you in the process of you continuing to move forward even amidst that betrayal. Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. What can we learn when we've been betrayed by a close friend or even a family member? Betrayal will happen to all of us, but we can all learn a valuable lesson in studying the way Jesus dealt with betrayal. Today, David takes us to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John in a message called Learning from Betrayal. The subject today is betrayal. Have you ever had anybody, or anybody's plural, betray you? Uh, maybe in marriage, uh, maybe in your job, uh, maybe with your finances. In some way, somebody betrayed you. It's maybe the most painful emotion that anyone will ever experience. Uh, the rejection of somebody you trusted and loved is beyond comprehension. Uh, so today, I want to look at the life of Judas and Jesus, and also a glance at Peter, for he betrayed Jesus as well, and to see how in the world we as followers of Jesus should respond to those who have betrayed us. Um, there are examples throughout history of Brutus, where Caesar, before Brutus kills him, says, Et tu Brute, you too. There's Benedict Arnold. Uh, there's also Judas, though, probably the most famous traitor of all times. And that word traitor is interestingly, interesting. it comes interestingly from uh, the early church days when people would turn on Christians and turn them over to Rome to be persecuted. And when that happened, that term turn them over is in the Latin, traitori, it's from where we get traitor. And also it's interesting that uh, you had to not only turn over friends who were Christians when you weren't that, but you would also then when they would be arrested, demand that they turn over their Bibles or other religious documents. So again, the term traitor comes from to turn over, to give over uh, in the early church when people were betraying their Christian friends to Rome to have them arrested persecuted, and maybe even killed. So it's a painful emotion. Uh, I hope not many of you have had to go through it. My guess is most all of you have, simply because we live in such a broken, fallen world. So with that having been said, let me look at these verses, just read through them pretty quickly, and then I'm going to come back and give you some insights into how traitors work, uh, why traitors work, and how we as Christians should respond to a betrayal. So let's lead, read these verses together. Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet. They'd been arguing among themselves at the Last Supper, remember, a day before Jesus was going to be crucified on the cross, and he took a towel, a basin, and filled it with water and went from disciple to disciple to disciple and washed their gungy, dirty, calloused, ugly feet to say to them, my job is to serve, not be served. And he gives this, as he said last week, remember the verse, this is an example for you. So if you want to know how to live, live like this. Wash other people's feet. Be a servant. Life's about not being served, but to give your life away in service to other people. So right after he had done this, we see in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Uh, this is the second time we see this in the last two chapters. He's troubled in his spirit. Jesus, perfectly God, but perfectly human, his spirit was troubled. That word means agitated, stirred up. The picture often when this word is used in antiquity is a sea that's being tossed and turned by wind and the foam is 
uh, up at the top of the waves uh, spouting forth uh, that foam. And that, that's the idea of Jesus' heart being really agitated and troubled. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you. Again, whenever you see this, and it's there dozens of times in the Gospel of John, Jesus is trying to say, really listen up. This is really important what I'm about to say. This is the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So as they're still sitting around the table, and remember they reclined at table, leaning on their left elbow, one's head was in the chest of the person next to them, and Jesus has them in a circle around him. On his left is Judas. The person on the left was always in the position of honor, chosen by the special guest to be in that position. The person on the right was the closest friend. So we see in this circle that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we'll see him referred to as such in just a moment, was right next to Jesus' breast. He was, his head was right here at Jesus' chest, and Jesus' head was right at the chest of Judas. So there could be intimate conversations that could take place either in the group or between two people very carefully. So keep that in mind as well as we move forward. But Jesus says, among the other 12 disciples, one of you is going to betray me. Now, that's fascinating because they didn't have a clue who that was going to be. We'll see in just a bit later why that was the case. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Well, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So every other place in the Gospel of John where this is talked about, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it most always appears to be John, the author of the Gospel of John. He was probably only 19 or 20 years of age at this point. We think that because he wrote the Gospel of John as the last Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he, in church history, lived to be 90-plus years of age. So the only way he could have done that was to be a young teen at this point in his following of Jesus, but Jesus really loved him. There was a special bond and friendship between them, even though there was a decade plus that separated them in years. And John was right next to Jesus' chest. And so in verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So we don't know where Simon Peter was in the circle, could have been right across the table from everyone. The table's about 18 inches high again as they're reclining on their left elbow. And Peter's going to John, hey, ask him who? Ask him who? Because we know in another gospel, they're all asking among themselves, is it I? Is it I? Again, they had no clue it was Judas. He was a great pretender. He was a faux follower of Jesus. And they're all asking among themselves, is it I? And so Peter's finally going, hey, John, ask him. So that's what's going on here. And then John, leaning back against Jesus, against his chest, said to him, Lord, who is it? And he's whispering probably at this point, and others can't hear it. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And we see again that Judas is called the son of Simon Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, from probably the southern part of Judah, uh, Ishkarioth is 
how this would come about. Ish means son. Kerioth is probably the city about 23 miles from Jerusalem. And if that's the case, and Simon is his father, first of all, Judas is the only disciple chosen by Jesus of the 12. And all 12 were chosen by Jesus, but Judas is the only one from the south down in Judah. All the others were from the north of Israel in Galilee. So Judas might have felt like an outcast from the beginning. He was in charge of the money bag. Now, we see in Luke, the eighth chapter, verses one through three, that many wealthy women followed Jesus and must have given money to his account, and Judas was the one who oversaw that money bag. Now, we know from today that when there are ministers and televangelists asking people for money, that a lot of women, especially widows, give their money, and I think I heard this correctly, that Billy Graham's entire ministry was built mostly on an average $18 a year gift from widows out there. But if a lot of them give, then that accumulates a large amount of money. And I think that's fine if they're giving to a ministry they want to give to. And it is a good, positive ministry. In Jesus' day, his ministry touched a lot of people's lives. And there were a good number of wealthy women out there, perhaps widows as well, who gave their money. And Jesus was able to accumulate enough where it had to be carried in a money bag. And Judas was the one who oversaw that money bag. He was the CFO of Jesus' apostolic band. Uh, He was the financial manager. It implies that he very well could have had a real in-depth education. Maybe he went to the University of Jerusalem and got a CPA degree, and he was then made the CFO by Jesus because he had an academic uh, background and uh, giftedness that allowed him to oversee the money. And it looks like the other disciples liked him doing so. There was never an objection to him with the money except in John 12 when Mary poured out that expensive perfume on Jesus worth about an annual year's wage. It was Judas who said, that money could go to the poor. Uh, We see John then making a comment, Judas could care less about the poor. He wanted the money in the money bag because he pilfered regularly money from that money bag. Uh, So we see that the Judas was doing that, but it was looked at later on by John backward as he tried to put the pieces together. But at this moment, in that circle, nobody knew that Judas was betraying Jesus. Again, I would suggest he was considered one of the 12, probably respected, the most educated of them all, and he oversaw all of the money. So when Jesus gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, entered into Judas. Now, if you remember last week in John 13, verse 2, it says Satan was tempting Judas, continuing to tempt him to finalize in his mind his decision to betray Jesus. And folks, he hadn't yet made that decision. Uh, You need to know that the devil can't force us to do anything. God is not sovereign over our choices. Now, that may sound odd, but he allows us to choose even against him. Now, he will work even our bad choices for good if we'll come and trust him in every possible way. But he is Lord over everything, but he allows us the freedom of choice. 
Judas at this point did not choose yet to follow Satan. He was tempting him, putting the thought in his mind, just like he does you and me. He puts the thought in our minds. He tempts us with different thoughts, but we ultimately make the decision whether we're going to seal the deal, if you will, and then choose to betray or do whatever is wrong. Well, in John 13, 2, the temptation's there, but the devil hadn't entered into Judas completely until this moment. It was at this moment that Judas sealed the deal. It was at this moment he said in his own mind, I'm really going to do this. I'm going to betray Jesus. And so Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. What you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus knew everything. He he knew what choices Judas was going to make. God knows your choices, even though he doesn't force you to choose. Now, here's an example. My dad used to give me all the time. He said, if you put a piece of red meat on this side of the room and a hungry dog on that side of the room, what does your foreknowledge tell you about a hungry dog and red meat? Right, that hungry dog is going to eat that red meat. Then my dad would say, does your knowing it force the dog to do it? And the answer is, of course not. You know enough about hungry dogs and red meat to know they're going to do that. Similarly, God knows our choices because he's sovereign and knows everything, but he doesn't make us do it. We still have that free choice in our hearts. So Jesus knew what Judas was going to do, even though Judas had the choice to betray him. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So everybody's kind of hearing this conversation, and then they do hear Jesus say, Judas, go do what you got to do quickly. And the conclusion is among the disciples whether he's either going to buy something that we're going to need for the continued Passover celebration through the weekend, or he's going to go give some money to the poor out of the money bag because that's regularly done by people during the Passover time as well. So that's what they concluded together as they saw Judas get up And after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. There's a beautiful image there, isn't there? Judas went into the night, into the darkness. His mind hadn't been made up. He was going to betray Jesus. Now he is totally and completely walking in separation from Jesus, walking in total and complete darkness. The traitor had sealed the deal. Now now look at verse 31. When he, Judas, had gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus is saying, now since Judas is gone, the cross is certain, God is going to glorify his Son through that cross in a way you can't begin to imagine. Even when you're betrayed, folks, God can still work everything together for good. He can still glorify you in the process of you continuing to move forward even amidst that betrayal. Then Jesus continues in verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The next day, Jesus will hang on that cross, take all of our sins upon himself and then give us the forgiveness of our sins by grace through faith, the wrath of God for our sins poured out on the Son, and he will be glorified through the resurrection as the offering of our sins to God through Jesus being completed, and we are by grace through faith forever and ever and ever forgiven. What a glory through Jesus that is given to us. Jesus is indeed glorified through the cross that's about to come up. And then Jesus says, little children, note the 
great depth of love, the compassion Jesus had toward his disciples then and us. He called them little children. Yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. After Jesus' death for the forgiveness of our sins, the Jews nor the disciples could go to that place. It was a place where Jesus alone could go. Verse 34, powerful verse in all of the Bible, a new commandment I give to you. I mean, there are old commandments all throughout the Old Testament, not the least of which is love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. But here Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new commandment that's not in the Old Testament. For you, my followers, here's the new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Key words coming up. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Mm. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said the greatest way to win the world to Jesus is for Christians to love one another. There's a verse in James 3.16 that says, where there is strife, there's every evil thing. I find it very interesting Jesus excised the strife in his body from the other disciples so that there could be love and unity among them. Jesus said there will be no power to take the gospel, my forgiving grace, throughout the world unless there is love and unity among you. That's why I've heard people at different church conferences teach courses on how to close the back door. Well, dear friends, in churches, the back door needs to remain open. Why? Because there are some people who just want to stir up strife. They want to complain and gripe, and there needs to come a point where, in the name of Jesus, politely, you say to them, the back door is open. We need this strife gone. A little bit of leaven, Jesus said, can cause the whole loaf to become stale and even putrid. You've got to get rid of the leaven for the bread to be healthy and whole. Similarly, you've got to get rid of strife and get rid of complaining, griping people for the church and for the disciples of Jesus to remain in unity and love. And as they are one and as they love one another, the world will look at the profound way that we love one another and want to be a part of it. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio with the key to forgiveness. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and with me today is Bart Noonan with West Boulevard Ministry. Bart, tell us about West Boulevard Ministry. Uh, thank you, Mark, for this opportunity to speak about West Boulevard Ministry, and, and more importantly, about Jesus Christ. West Boulevard Ministry serves the spiritual and physical needs of the families and the communities within the West Boulevard quarter to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether we're doing neighborhood outreach cookouts, gatherings where we're bringing people outside of their apartments, their homes, into fellowship with one another, or we're doing Bible study bingo the first Wednesday of every month at Little Rock Apartments. And uh, we gather anywhere from 50 to 70 children that we share the gospel with and we play bingo after our Bible study portion of the night. And a couple weeks ago, there's a young man who we've been walking with now close to three years who came in, he, he forgot something, like a lot of young, young kids do, he forgot something in the um, space, and he came back in and he ended up praying out 
myself and all the other volunteers for the West Boulevard ministry team that were gathered there for that night and led us all in prayer and closed it out. And this young man, we've been taking to church every every Sunday for about the past year and a half. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about providing an opportunity for Jesus Christ to work inside someone's heart and, and then encourage them along the way. That sounds great. Now, Bart, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with you, how would they do that? The best way to do is uh, either email myself at bart at westboulevardministry.org, or they can call me straight up in my cell phone, and I always answer. I'm sort of like a doctor. The phone's always on, and that's 980-298-9027. I would encourage folks, too, to also go to our website, which is westboulevardministry.org, and there you can see some of our photo galleries. You can see some of the blogs and a lot of things we do throughout the West Boulevard Corridor to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is great having you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. I'm Jen Houston, and with me today is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Jen. Are you doing well? I am doing well. Thank you very much. How about you? I am well. Thank you. It's great to be with you again today. It is. Well, in this morning's Moment of Hope, you wrote a Davidism about the key to forgiveness, and I think this is one we can all take to heart. Jen, one of the real issues I continually experience in not only my own life, but in the lives of other people is this problem of bitterness. Mm. They hold on to hurts in the past, and they really want people to suffer like they have suffered when they've been hurt by them. And forgiveness is the only answer. It's what Jesus told us to do. So then comes the question, first of all, what's the definition of forgiveness? I think the best definition I've ever heard is release the other person from the debt they owe you. Mm. It's also similarly not wanting them to suffer as you have suffered from them. Mm. And when you do that, you release them to the Lord and your bitterness shrinks and you have more love that comes into your heart. And interestingly, it's called in the Bible the root of bitterness because if you don't address it, it will grow and defile everybody in your sphere of influence. So how in the world do we understand forgiveness and what is the key to forgiveness, I think it's one thing, knowing the cross, Mm -hmm. knowing how much Jesus has forgiven us. Mm -hmm. And if you look at all of your sins and all the ways you've disappointed him, it's a billion-dollar debt. It's something that's impossible to pay. The chasm between you and God is so huge, it only took the cross to bring you back into relationship with the Father. So if you realize that you have a billion-dollar debt that Jesus paid all for you, stamped on your heart, paid in full, forever forgiven— Then when somebody hurts you, you realize, in comparison, that's a $10 debt. (laughs) It really is in comparison. So this is the parable Jesus taught in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, of the king that forgave a guy a billion-dollar debt. But then he went on the streets and demanded a $10 debt that somebody owed him to be paid off. Mm -hmm. And the king heard about that and was furious and said, you're in prison Mm -hmm. until you understand what I did for you. And I think the same thing is key for us. We need to give that person the $10 forgiveness Mm -hmm. debt for our sake, for his sake, but mostly for the sake of the kingdom because it's saying, I really understand what happened on that cross. It was a billion-dollar debt forgiven, something I could not ever pay, but Jesus Mm. paid it all. I love that. And one other angle at looking at the cross, I heard it said that when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, I think that creates in us a compassionate view to to look at people who've offended us. There's no way they can understand the depth of hurt they've done. 
Father, forgive them. Yeah. They don't know how deeply they've wounded me. Yeah. And, and you know, people are complex in their motives. When they do hurt us, there's some selfish ambition. There's some envy. There's some jealousy. There's a desire for money, for power, ambition, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, Jen, they don't even know they're being driven by those things. Wow. They're, they're part of a fallen human world, and they have fallen human flesh, and they don't even know it. And I think mm-hmm. that's why Jesus has well said, uh, you know, Father, they're, they're not even aware of what they're doing, forgive them. And when you have that kind of attitude, again, you're free. Mm-hmm. You're the one who doesn't have bitterness, and that's what Jesus wants for us all. That's so good. Thank you so much, David. Well, thank you, Jen, and thank you, listeners. And please be free from bitterness. It only hurts you, and you're the one holding on to the grudge. And oftentimes, the person who's hurt you has moved on with their lives. Mm-hmm. They're not even thinking about you. And if you'd like to receive these daily written Moments of Hope from me, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there from my heart to yours, free of charge, every morning at 7 a.m. in your inbox to give your day a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. Again, come join us this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte. Our web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for godly wisdom for the leaders of our nation.